This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good evening and welcome to the AUA's Harpy Precision Medicine and Advanced Prostate Cancer. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our programs. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this internet live activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Course handouts from the presentation have been made available to you. Please visit AUA University to access the handouts. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following the course. As we at the AUA continue to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we especially welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format following the program. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view Faculty and Education Council disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Pfizer Inc. for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar. Coning advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. Finally, I'd like to introduce and extend a special thank you to our moderator and course director, Dr. Ashley Ross, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Ashley Ross, MD, PhD, is an Associate Professor of Urology at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, where he additionally serves as the Clinical Director of the Polsky Urological Institute. As an expert in prostate cancer, he focuses on the development, testing, and implementation of novel diagnostics and therapeutics with a goal of reducing the suffering from prostate cancer. Wonderful. So, you know, in this roughly, you know, 60-minute course, we're going to um, go over PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer. And this course comes from a identified um, need by the AUA to increase education and awareness in this potential gap um, for prostate cancer care. We're gonna have a few learning objectives. The first is we wanna describe the mechanism of action of PARP inhibitors and some of the differences among drugs in the class. The second is we're going to describe the role of PARP inhibitors um, when they're in treatment as monotherapies or in combination with other prostate cancer-based therapies. The third is we're going to talk about the existing clinical trial data on the efficacy of PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer in both monotherapy and in combination. And then finally, we want to highlight how multidisciplinary team can be used to provide optimal cancer care to our men with prostate cancer and specifically those with advanced disease. So it's really my pleasure to introduce two of my um, friends, collaborators, and esteemed colleagues that have expertise in prostate cancer, uh, Dr. Emmanuel Antonarakis and Ms. Carolyn Pratz. Dr. Antonarakis is the Clark Endowed Professor of Medicine at the Masonic Cancer Center in the University of Minnesota. He's an expert genitourinary medical oncologist 
and he's really focused his career on the development and understanding of therapeutics for advanced prostate cancer. But Dr. Antronoxis, well, welcome tonight. I'm also joined, as I mentioned, by Ms. Carolyn Pratz, who's an advanced practice provider at the University of Pennsylvania Aberson Cancer Center, which is part of the Perlman, Perlman Center for Advanced Medicine. She spent almost a decade focused on the care of patients with genitourinary malignancies, including advanced prostate cancer. Ms. Pratz, Carolyn, um, welcome this evening. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's kind of progress on. I thought we would begin with maybe a basic inner overview of the presentation of men with metastatic prostate cancer and how they progress in their clinical course. Um, Carolyn, can you walk us through how a man might present to your clinic with metastatic prostate cancer and then progress along their cancer journey? Absolutely. So we often see these patients either with uh, newly diagnosed disease that, have, that are metastatic at diagnosis or they've had prior therapy such as um, radical prostatectomy or radiation or both um, prior to presenting to our clinic. Um, from there, um, the backbone of therapy for any of these patients is androgen deprivation therapy. Um, it, the, it has changed, the landscape's changed, so now we potentially will be adding other therapies to it, um, depending on the, the extent of their disease at that point in time. Um, those can include androgen receptin signaling inhibitors, chemotherapy, radiation therapy potentially. Eventually, all of these patients will become castrate resistant, um, and then we'll be moving on to other therapies, um, which may include an, an ASRI, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, a PARP inhibitor, plus or minus an ASRI, or immunotherapy. Wonderful. And, and you know, as you're sort of a, like sort of mentioning, you know, prostate cancer remains the second leading cause of cancer death among American men. But we really have seen the substantial advances in the last, um, you know, even five years. We've seen the FDA approval of new androgen receptor blockers, radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer, and uh, uh, PARP inhibitors, which is the which is the topic of, of of this webinar. In fact, there's been four PARP inhibitors that have been approved either as monoagents or in combinational regimens um, since 2020. So Emmanuel, before we dive into you know specifics here, maybe it's in, in nice for the audience to understand you know what are the PARP proteins, how do they you know how do they work in the cell, and why might PARP inhibitors be more effective in certain cancers? Well, actually, the uh, the honest answer is nobody really knows, but I, I will tell you what the party line is. And um, every time a a cell replicates, including a normal cell, not just a cancer cell. First thing it has to do is replicate its DNA. It has to make a carbon copy of its of its DNA, and then it replicates and divides into two. During that DNA replication process, errors can occur in the uh, replication process. Either there can be single-strand DNA errors or breaks, or there can be double-strand uh, DNA errors or breaks, where both strands of the double helix uh, break at the same time. And there's a main mechanism that repairs single-strand breaks, which is called base excision repair. And the main enzyme or group of enzymes that does that are the PARP enzymes. And there's at least eight PARP enzymes that are known. PARP 1, 2, and 3 are the most important. So you can think of those enzymes as fixing single-strand DNA damage. And then you've got a second pathway whereby the double strand can be repaired at one time. 
and that is done by the so-called homologous recombination genes and proteins. The most famous of those are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes and proteins. And nature has built in a redundancy. And what that means is that there are two ways that the cell can fix the damage. You can either do it one strand at a time, you can do it two strands at a time. If one of those is crippled, the other one takes over. And if the second is crippled, the first can take over. Now, just imagine you have a patient or a cell that has a BRCA2 mutation, and therefore the homologous recombination function is crippled or inactivated. So that cell can't fix double strand breaks at once, so it relies on single strand repairs. So in other words, that cell becomes really addicted to or reliant upon PARP function. And in that context, if you inhibit PARP with a drug pharmacologically, like a PARP inhibitor, that cell actually has no other ways that it can repair its DNA damage, and therefore it undergoes apoptosis and cell death. So that's the concept of so-called synthetic lethality, which means that both single-strand repair is crippled, in this case pharmacologically, and double-strand repair is crippled by the genetic mutations in genes like BRCA1 and 2. So the key thing is these drugs will not work at all. They will have no activity whatsoever unless double-strand repair is already crippled by one of these gene mutations. Yeah, and that's, that's excellent. You know, um, Carolyn, you know, as, as Emmanuel was mentioning, you know, we're looking for cancers that are deficient in homologous recombination. You know, in prostate cancer, how often in general does that happen in advanced prostate cancer? You know, it, as a category, homologous recombination repair deficiencies, and perhaps, you know, more specifically with, with BRCA1 or 2 mutations. Um, so it can happen in about 10 to 20% of metastatic uh, prostate cancers. Um, more commonly, we're seeing BRCA1 and BRCA2, more commonly BRCA2 um, gene deficiencies. Um, we can also see CHECK2, ATM, um, PALB2. Um, we're looking for these genes when we're in clinic. We're, for most of us, um, working in the academic setting, and we hopefully are moving this towards the community setting as well. We're screening these patients at this at, um, when they become metastatic, um, and definitely when they're making changes um, in therapies and having progression. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, this is going to be the topic of our second part of our of our AUA series on PARP inhibitors. We'll take a deep dive into how we how we assess for um, homologous recombination deficiencies, particularly you know BRCA loss or mutations. And just as you mentioned, Carolyn, so important, I think, to, to identify, you know, and, and characterize these patients as soon as they have advanced disease. Because as you said earlier, you know, many men, as if, if they survive long enough, the men are with the good therapies, they'll progress to cancer-resistant prostate cancer, and they may have the opportunity to have beneficial regimens that include PARP inhibitors. Um, so, you know, Emmanuel, there's four FDA-approved PARP inhibitors. Those are Olaparib, Rucaparib, Halazoparib and um, niraparib, and these are uh, um, approved for, for use in prostate cancer. For talzoparib and, and niraparib, they're in combination with enzalutamide or, or abiraterone, respectively. You know, can you take us through just a few of the similarities and uh, maybe differences, if you want, that are salient about these different PARP inhibitors? So, as you mentioned, um, there are actually more than four PARP inhibitors being studied, but four in the context of prostate cancer that have received FDA approval. 
And um, the, the short answer is this is getting very, very complicated, even for academic oncologists and urologists like us and uh, APPs. Um, and it's even getting complicated for those of us who also think we understand genetics. And what we do know is that they all inhibit uh, the PARP1 and PARP2 and partially PARP3 enzymes. Ideally, if, if we had the perfect drug, it would inhibit PARP1 only and not 2 and 3, but the, the agents that we have so far are a little bit nonspecific and dirty. That actually worsens and enhances the toxicity, um, but there are PARP1 selective agents being developed down the line. Two of the PARP inhibitors are approved as a monotherapy. That's Olaparib and Rucaparib, and we're going to discuss the trials in a, in a moment. And then the other ones, Telazoparib, Niraparib, and then Olaparib again, are also approved as combination therapies. And the, the simplest way to think about uh, the, the use of these drugs is to think about the, the clinical disease state of the patient, what other therapies he has received in the past, and what genetic mutation he has at that particular point in time. And it's really the disease state, the prior therapies, and the specific genetic mutation that helps you decide which of the four to use and if or not to combine um, the, the ones that have the combination labels with the AR antagonist. They all have overlapping toxicities. Fatigue is a major toxicity with all four of them. Nausea, appetite suppression. They all do suppress the bone marrow. Again, this gets back to the point that they are not PARP1 specific, they also inhibit PARP2 and PARP3. Um, and um, they can uh, have some issues with renal function, mild, but in some cases it can occur. And um, importantly, and this is important for patients that are going to be receiving these drugs for a long time, there is a small risk, maybe one in 100 or 0.5% maybe, of causing these so-called myelodysplastic syndromes or even in certain cases, acute myeloid leukemia. So when we talk about using these drugs earlier in the latter part of this session, we need to keep in mind and balance that with the potential risk of MDS and AML. That's a great overview. Um, you know, just to um, just to kind of bring it more to a head. You know, so Carolyn, <clears throat> if you you know had a patient. Um, who was on a PARP inhibitor regimen, and say they had a BRCA mutation and you had chosen that PARP inhibitor regimen, and they're progressing to that regimen, would it make sense to move them to another PARP inhibitor, um, like from, you know, Olaparib to then a combination therapy with Talzoparib? Is that, and you can chime in manual too, but would that make sense to you? It doesn't because the mechanism action is, a, is the same, so they're unlikely to respond to a different agent. And similar, as Emmanuel mentioned, you know, and just for the audience, you know, anemia can be a, a common um, um, tox toxicity or side effect of these medications. If someone was having anemia depending, dependent on transfusions and you were thinking, we have to switch them off this regimen, you know, similar question, would it make sense to go from one regimen to another? No, you, you would dose reduce the current regimen. You're going to have the same side effect um, without, yeah. through the class. And, and that's my feeling too, you know, as, as Emmanuel mentioned, I, I, Quite frankly, this is like extremely complicated. I'm, I'm you know, overjoyed that the AUA is, is starting to take a deep dive here. Emmanuel, I kind of feel exactly the same as Carolyn does. Are we, we may be missing something though, or is there 
is there any situation where you would where you would maybe switch regimens or be, go somewhere beyond dose reduction? I generally would not. Um, some PARP inhibitors start off at very low doses, for example, telazoprid, which is the most potent PARP inhibitor. Um, the starting dose of that, when you combine it uh, with enzalutamide, is 0 0.5 milligrams. So just as a reference, the, the average dose of olaparib is 300 milligrams BID. So just compare 300 BID versus 0 0.5 once a day. Um, so you know, with some of them, there's room to go down. With others, even the lowest dose can cause significant anemia. But uh, yeah, I, I would typically agree that I would not change from one to another, either for toxicity or for a lack of efficacy. Perfect. And you know, you mentioned earlier, Manuel, that the um, you know the the about some of the FDA uh, trial approve, approvals for PARP inhibitors and some of the uh, trials that led to those approvals. So let's think about monotherapy. You know, first, as you mentioned, olaparib and rucaparib um, both have FDA approvals in selected men with metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. Can you go over some of the kind of like later phase or trials or the trials that led to that to those approvals? Sure, why don't we pull up the slide? I'm gonna do my best to leave you with some pearls and words of wisdom, hopefully, rather than dissect all the details of these trials. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit easier. When we talk about the combinations, it becomes even more convoluted. Um, the monotherapy for olaparib uh, was based on the profound clinical trial shown there on the, on the first column. And the profound was a randomized study. It was patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. They had to have received one or two androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. They were allowed to have received the taxane, but that was not required. And then they were randomized to either olaparib by itself as a monotherapy or one of the two um, AR inhibitors, preferably the one that the patient had not received before. There were two cohorts. Cohort A, which was the primary cohort, was patients that had germline or somatic mutations in BRCA1, 2, or ATM. Then there was a second cohort, cohort B, with 12 additional HRR genes. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, uh, both in cohort A and then in the combined population, and the trial met its primary endpoint, both for the cohort A, three genes, and when you bunch them all together, A plus B. And that ended up being a panel of 14 genes. I, I, I want to say one thing here, and that is the overall survival was also measured in the uh, cohort A patients, and that was statistically significant. So this drug by itself Olaparib by itself has an overall survival benefit in patients with the BRCA1, BRCA2 ATM cohort. The overall survival was not met in cohort B and was also not met when cohorts A plus B were combined. This led to the FDA approving Olaparib as a monotherapy in men with MCRPC who have received at least one novel hormone therapy pre or post chemotherapy. And that's really important because a patient that has not yet received docetaxel in the CRPC or HSPC setting would be immediately eligible for olaparib as long as he had one of those 14 genes listed across the bottom of the slide. And again, those genes are not ones that I've memorized. They're not ones that most people memorize. It includes BRCA1 and BRCA2, and then 12 other 
what I call minor players. The benefit is driven by BRCA2 and perhaps a few other genes. Now let's talk. Yeah, one quick clarification there too. In regards for that man with metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, you know, under the FDA approval, do they have to have received the ENZA or ABI when they were castrate resistant or could they have received it in the hormone sensitive setting um, for their disease? They could have received it in either setting, but they must have received at least one. Perfect. Now the Triton II study was the, um, the single arm, non-randomized study that led to the FDA approval of rucaparib. This is important because it was been the first time in the history of prostate cancer approvals well, the approval came with a single arm study, not a randomized study. But the caveat was it was an accelerated approval, and that approval was contingent upon the Triton 3 study, which we'll talk about in a second. So Triton 2 was about 100 patients, very small study. They had to have BRCA1 or BRCA2, again, germline or somatic mutation. And then they received rucaparib as a monotherapy, and the primary endpoint was objective response rate. In other words, shrinkage of soft tissue lesions, typically on CT scan. And the objective response rate was very respectable, about 46% in the BRCA1, BRCA2 patients. Now, the very important thing about Triton 2, this was a post-AR and post-docetaxel population. Every single patient had progressed on both at least one AR-targeted therapy and docetaxel. So when the FDA came in with their accelerated approval, that required that the patient must have received and progressed after one taxane agent, mainly docetaxel. And so the, the, the rucaparib label currently is restricted to those men that have received and failed docetaxel. After that, the Triton 3 study was conducted. The Triton 3 study was a randomized trial. And this study had two key differences. One was it was a pre-docetaxel population. So these were patients with MCRPC. They had failed one RC. They had never received docetaxel for CRPC. And they were randomized to rucaparib or the control arm. And the control arm had three choices, either ABI or ENZA or the docetaxel. And the physician and the patient could actually decide which of those three to use in the control arm. And that study had a progression-free survival benefit, and that progression-free survival benefit was met. However, a few key caveats. If you look at the ATM patients in that study, that subset, they actually did not benefit. There was a subset there that was reported, and they did not benefit. The BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients did benefit. And as you can see there, the, the right-hand bottom box is blank. And that box is blank for a reason. It's because the FDA has not yet expanded the use of rucaparib in the pre-chemotherapy setting. That's number one. And number two, it has not yet expanded the label to include ATM. Those two things may or may not happen, but they have not happened yet. So despite a positive phase three study published in the England Journal of Medicine, at the current moment, rucaparib can still only be used post-docetaxel, and again, only for BRCA1 and BRCA2, not ATM. Perfect. And that's a, a big overview. Carolyn, um, before we see if we have any more pearls from Dr. Anharakis, can you just maybe summarize it by saying who would be the ideal patient in your mind 
for monotherapy with a PARP inhibitor like olaparib or rupaparib? A uh, patient with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation and those that have received um, an ARSI plus or minus docetaxel. Perfect. And that's, and, and that's as, as you know, Dr. Antronic said, if you're metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer and you've received enzalutamide or abiraterone as like say, or other androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, you, you know, you're a candidate for Olaparib. If you've had docetaxel and, you know, those um, drugs, you're a candidate for Rucaparib. Um, you know, we've seen, and feel free to give any additional pearls there, Dr. Antaracus, but, you know, just to keep us moving, we've also seen three additional approvals, as you mentioned before, of combination therapies with PARP inhibitors, Olaparib with abiraterone, talazoprib, you know, with enzalutamide, and niraparib, with abiraterone. And, you know, those are from these three trials, Propel, Magnitude, and Talapro 2. Um, you know, again, I know we're asking a lot from you, but can you take us through these three trials and sort of give us the high-level uh, evidence? So the, the natural hypothesis was to see whether these drugs can be combined with the um, ARSIs, which we're already using. And there were a number of theoretical and laboratory reasons to do that. But of course, we have to prove it in, in patients. So there were three studies. The, the first is Propel, and Propel was unique because it was a biomarker unselected study. The patients did not have to undergo a germline or somatic genetic testing before enrolling, even though all patients had it done, and the information was used after the fact to look at subsets, but it was not required for enrollment. And these were patients with first-line metastatic CRPC who had not previously received abiraterone, and the vast, vast majority had not previously received enzalutamide either. That brings up a point, which is that in the current day, the number of patients getting to first-line MCRPC who have not received Abiorenza or Darrow in the past is becoming very, very small. But that was actually the population that was studied here. And then the control arm was the abiraterone plus prednisone alone with a placebo. And the interventional arm was the abiraterone prednisone plus olaparib. They were um, randomized to one arm or the other. And then the progression-free survival was the primary endpoint. And in the overall population, so irrespective of the HRR status, in the overall population, many of us, including me, were surprised that the study was positive overall. The progression-free survival has a ratio of 0.68, and as you can see there, confidence interval is way below one, so it doesn't cross one. Now, here's the thing, though. In the BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients, the progression-free survival benefit was absolutely enormous and it was even more pronounced. In fact, I can't remember the last time I've seen a hazard ratio of 0.23, and the upper limit is 0.43, so again, a very, very profound benefit. And the surprising thing, and perhaps the controversial thing was, even though this study was not a biomarker predefined study, the biomarkers were done post hoc after the fact. Despite that, when the FDA and their advisory committee, which is called ODAC, reviewed the data, they made a very surprising decision. And the decision was, they only approved the combination of olaparib plus abiraterone in this first line 
MCRPC setting only in patients with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. Again, despite the fact that the PFS was positive overall. So in the first line MCRPC setting, if you don't have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, or if you don't know the genomic status, you cannot prescribe the combination of elaborate plus abiraterone. As an aside, in Europe, the European Medicine Agency's EMA has approved it for all comers. That's not the case in the U.S. In the U.S., BRCA1 and BRCA2 only. The second trial is magnitude, and magnitude is the combination of niraparib, another PARP inhibitor, with abiraterone versus AB alone. This one had two deliberate cohorts, had a positive biomarker cohort called HRR altered, and then a negative biomarker cohort where we knew that those patients were tested and they were HRR negative. Again, the progression-free survival was the primary endpoint. In this study, in the HRR negative wild-type patients, the hazard ratio was 1.09. That arm was closed for futility. So there wasn't even a hint of a benefit in the HRR negative patients in that trial. Whereas in the HRR positive, and more specifically, the BRCA1-2 positive, there was a, a great benefit. As a small point, if you compare the hazard ratio of the BRCA patients, it's 0.53. In the previous study, the propellant was 0.23. So one can make his or her own conclusions as to which combination is more efficacious, even though they both met statistical significance. One might argue, and, and I might be that person, who would say that the Olaparib-Abby combination may perhaps be more efficacious than Nirabarib-Abby. That one was also FDA-approved specifically and exclusively for BRCA1 and BRCA2, not the entire HRR panel. And that brings us to the third combination, Telepro-2 study, Telazoparib plus enzalutamide. So this is a, another AR antagonist, Enza in this case. Enza was combined with Tala. Progression-free survival primary endpoint. Here there were also two populations, biomarker positive, biomarker negative. The trial had a unique design whereby the overall population could also be assessed irrespective of the biomarker status, but then it also had the power to look at each biomarker subset uh, independently. And like in the PROPEL study, in the overall patient population and in the HRR non-altered, there was a PFS benefit. Although, as you can see there, with the hazard ratio of 0.46, the greatest benefit, which was pretty profound, was in the HRR altered group. Now, a key point about the combination of talazoprib and enzalutamide is this combination has been approved not just for BRCA1 and 2, but for a 12-gene panel. Not the 14-gene panel of olaparib monotherapy that was on the prior slide. This is where it really gets confusing. It's a 12-gene panel. That panel is shown at the bottom of this slide. Those 12 genes are not exactly overlapping with the 14 genes of the olaparib panel. There are some that overlap, but there are some in there like ATR, MLH1, MRE11A, MBN, which are not found anywhere on the olaparib panel. So you really need to have a cheat sheet in the clinic or in your pocket or have your computer available to be able to decipher all this because no one can keep this straight in their head. 
the uh, and you know for the for the uh, people who are attending today, um, you know the AUA does provide these slides, and I would say you know as Dr. Anton Rogers just summarized, this is a really good cheat sheet uh, if you wanted to look at these um, these different trials, either you know single therapy or combination therapy with PARP. You know, you sort of hinted at this, Emmanuel, as you went through it, you know, uh, you know, just sort of pragmatically in your clinic, how do you decide which combination or non-combination, how do you decide what to do with a patient with metastatic CRPC? Yeah, so it has to do with uh, disease state, prior therapies, and the gene mutation. So I'll just give you some, you know, specific concrete examples. If a patient has received um, ADT plus a novel energy receptor antagonist up front, let's say they get ADT plus AVI, ADT plus ENZA, that's their hormone-sensitive therapy. And now, two years later, they've progressed and they've become first-line MCRPC. None of these three combination studies really apply to that patient because that patient has already received the, the novel AR antagonist in the past. But that patient becomes immediately eligible for olaparib as a monotherapy. Why? Because they've received, you know, one antiandrogen happens to have been in the hormone-sensitive state, but now they are castration-resistant. So that patient, if they have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation or any of the other 12 genes on the olaparib panel, they can get just monotherapy with olaparib. Now, just imagine that same scenario, the first-line MCRPC in a patient who for whatever reason, has not previously received Abby or Enza or Darrow. So that patient has received ADT as a monotherapy. Again, for whatever reason, clinician recommended it, he refused it, had toxicities that, that didn't make it possible. If you do have a patient who reaches the MCRPC state and has never received a novel antiandrogen, then all three of these combinations shown on this study are on the table. But just imagine that patient has a CDK12 mutation, okay? That automatically restricts you to the Telepro2 regimen. Why? Because CDK12 is not part of the propeller magnitude. Now, if that patient has a BRCA2 mutation, then you've got all three options. And then the decision might have to do with which of the antiandrogens you would prefer to use. If you are a guy that likes to use Abby or a girl that likes to use Abby, then you might pick Abby Olaparib. Or abinuraparib, I typically tend to go with abiolaparib. I think it's more efficacious. But if you or your patient would prefer to use ENZA, for example, in that setting, then the ENZA telazoparib uh, would make more sense. Perfect. So, you know, Carolyn, maybe you can talk a little bit as an advanced provider. You know, we're, it's, these drugs are relatively new in the prostate cancer space. You know, how do you work with your medical oncologists um, and your teams to treat patients with advanced prostate cancer? Um, well, we're, you know, part of my job is educating them on how to take these medications and when to take them. And it gets very complicated, especially when we're using a combination of drugs. Um, so I often sit down with them in a clinic and go over the scheduling and the side effects to expect. Um, there are, you know, there is one combination therapy in the, the, the talazaparib and um, enzalutamide combination therapy pill. And if they're a candidate for that, for some, some patients, it's a huge relief to have um, decreased burden to think about the combination of pills that they potentially might be taking. The, um, you know, and then also like, you know, these are, and this is for you and Emmanuel, you know, these are really oral, 
you know, chemotherapies. I mean, for myself uh, as an academic urologist now, you know, we're very compartmentalized. I mostly treat localized prostate cancer and, and to my medical oncologist, have them do the advanced therapy. But a lot of urologists in like large urology practice groups and other settings, you know, are treating patients even sometimes now with, with docetaxel. Um, and so maybe, you know, you and Emmanuel can both sort of talk about considerations that patients might have as they, um, you know, or providers might have and pathways for them when they're going to be taking, you know, PARP inhibitors or prescribing PARP inhibitors or some words of guidance for urologists that might be prescribing. Um, I think, you know, the, we really need to sit down with the patients, make sure they know what they're taking, when they should be taking it, um, and then what to be looking out for as far as side effects. Um, uh, in my practice, we're checking CBCs for these patients weekly for the first month to make sure that we're not having significant anemia with these drugs. Um, talking about the fatigue that everyone is probably going to get, and then the GI side effects, which tend to get better as they're on the drug longer. You know, Ash, um, one thing that I would say is this is complicated for everyone, including medical oncologists, and um, the, the urologists that are doing advanced prostate cancer, and, and there are many that do it extremely well, um, I, I think that uh, they have become specialized. Most of these large urology practices, LUGPAS and, and others, will have, you know, one or two uh, designated uh, so-called advanced prostate cancer urologists who are doing many of the systemic therapies, including in some cases, although rarely chemotherapies. And I, I would encourage those practices to, to stick to one or two of the urologists who are doing a lot of the advanced disease, because this is not something that you wanna be doing once a month or, or twice a month. The, the second thing is um, there are a lot of drug-drug interaction considerations here. Um, two of the four PARP inhibitors are metabolized by the liver. So olaparib uh, is metabolized by CYP384. Rucaparib is metabolized by CYP2D6. The other ones, telazoparib and niraparib, were not hepatically metabolized at all. So there are fewer drug-drug interactions, at least liver interactions, uh, with, with tala and nira, as opposed to olaparib and rucaparib. But then you also get to the issue of you know, the drug-drug interactions that also have to do with the AR inhibitor itself when you're giving it in combination. So these um, urologists who are part of these group practices where they have the uh, advanced prostate cancer expertise, they also should be um, working with their, their pharmacists, you know, preferably oncology pharmacists or pharmacists knowledgeable with oncology drug-drug interactions because it can get complicated. These patients are often taking polypharmacy anyway. Um, the other issue is there is a 15% risk of um, transfusion-dependent anemia. And I don't know how comfortable or how much urology offices enjoy or are able to provide red blood cell transfusions, sometimes platelet transfusions. And again, grade three and grade four anemia is about 15% with almost all of these combinations. The, the, the most severe actually is telazoparib and zalutamide, where in that study they had, I think, almost 40% grade three to grade four anemia. And um, so those urology clinics do need to be prepared uh, to transfuse if needed. And then the, the blood monitoring, these patients, the first three months need labs monitored every two to four weeks. I, I like to do it every two weeks, the first you know, six weeks. 
and so it it's it's a it's a heavy burden on the on the providers on the APPs on the nurses uh, and on the pharmacists and all those pieces I think really need to be in place otherwise it's not something that I would recommend you know dabbling with yeah and I and great points by both of you and you know just sort of to you know summarize a little bit before we talk about like future directions for PARP inhibitors and again you know PARP inhibitors have been shown to improve oncological outcomes for men with advanced prostate cancer and homologous recombination repair deficiencies, specifically for men with metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. There's now four different PARP inhibitors as part of various regimens that are approved, including approval in first-line cancer-resistant prostate cancer settings. Even though some of those approvals um, for things like Olaparib and combination talzoprib plus enzalutamide include an array of homologous recombination uh, repair deficient men. Um, the biggest responses seem to be in the BRCA mutated individu individuals. There's no way to know if someone is going to be, you know, have a mutation or a loss of, of um, function or expression of BRCA1, BRCA2, or the other genes if we don't actually assess for that. And the um, ability of these drugs to influence non-mutated men is, is questionable. And so we have to, as mentioned you know, by our panelists, we have to screen these men you know, when they're metastatic. I, I usually do this in at least the hormone-sensitive setting, and certainly for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer men. You need a multidisciplinary team when you're giving these drugs, and you need that for any advanced prostate cancer patients, pharmacists. Uh, advanced providers, you know, radiation oncologists in some cases, also social workers and, and palliative care. And if you are a, like a, um, a group that's not used to giving a lot of advanced therapy, where you have specialists for advanced therapy, uh, I think this is a drug that we want to be sort of hawkish in our follow-up with because it can cause, you know, bone marrow uh, issues, et cetera. Just in one minute um, for, you know, Emmanuel and, and Carolyn, before we go into some of the post-test questions, um, you know, there's a lot of very exciting trials ongoing for PARP inhibitors. Um, you know, maybe you could speak towards like, what do you think the next um, thing that you're looking for is? You know, what's the next trial you'd be excited to see the outcomes for? So, uh, you know, the next thing that's going to be practice changing and obvious is the metastatic hormone sensitive first line state in a patient who you know has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. And um, in, the, in those patients, as was mentioned by Caroline, the, the standard of care is ADT plus or minus RC plus or minus docetaxel. And um, there are three trials now testing the addition of a PARP inhibitor in that setting. The first is Telepro-3, which is adding uh, telezoprib in the MHSPC state. The second is Amplitude, which is testing neuroperative in that setting. And then there's a new one called EVOPAR, E-V-O-P-A-R, which is testing a PARP-1 specific agent from AstraZeneca doesn't yet have a name um, in, in that metastatic hormone-sensitive population. So those three studies are going to tell us whether for a man that has a known BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation in the metastatic hormone-sensitive state, whether adding a PARP inhibitor at that point in time can improve their outcomes. Of course, that won't even be relevant unless we're testing patients before that point, right? Because now we're talking about you know, a new diagnosis, so if you have a de novo patient, MHSPC comes in through the ER with back pain. If those studies are positive, what that will mean is we now need to test that patient 
before we decide on the first line systemic therapy, which, you know, we've never done that before. And, and then one other thing, Ashley, you mentioned about the, um, the combinations. Uh, we've had some downers and some uppers. The, the downer is that the PARP inhibitor PD-1 combination was not successful. There was a phase three study recently published. Uh, it was uh, not successful. But there are other radiopharmaceutical drugs you touched upon. Uh, you didn't specifically mention it by name, lutetium-177, PSMA. Um, there are studies combining PARP inhibitors with lutetium. They are looking extremely promising. And of course, there's many, many others, but those are the ones that I'm excited about. And Carolyn, before we get into the questions, I'm just curious as an advanced practice provider, you know, as we have these new things onboarding into our clinic, how, how do you guys do it over at Penn? Do you... Um, have a checklist or do you, how do you ensure that you, that it's like sort of top of mind for both the testing and also when you think about different regimens, how, how do you go about it both at the initial time? And then if you have, if you're doing follow-up, you mentioned weekly follow-up, you know, how are you operationalizing that just in a minute or so before we get to questions? Um, I, a lot of reminders for myself. Um, I, we build a reminder into our notes about what we've tested for and what we haven't. Um, and as far as the lab work and follow up on the lab work, uh, it, for me, it's really just setting up a calendar reminder for those patients so that I know that I'm looking, they're getting labs outside of our institution, then I'm asking them to send me a message. So they are also a participant in, in letting me know that they've gotten done what they need to do for their homework. Yeah, and I and I know how from firsthand. I know how fastidious you are. I think one of the futures for all of us is going to be leveraging our EMRs and other things, so that it can sort of have some almost an automation in some ways, so that we we don't all have to be, uh, you know, uh, a Carolyn Pratt or or a Emmanuel Antonarakis. Just in the in the last um, few minutes since we have them, um, doctors Antonarakis and and you know Ms. Pratt's. Thank you so much for being part of this series um, and having very valuable contributions on this on this panel. If you want to leave us with just a couple final words or a couple final sentences, Carolyn, you know what would you advise for our attendees? Um, these are complicated drugs, and um, you know I would say use all the resources that you have, pharmacists, um, nurses, um, to help, and medical oncologists to help you um, figure out what the right plan is for your patient. Wonderful. Um, Dr. Antoronakis, Emmanuel, if you're still with us, any final words for our attendees? Yes, I'm still here, but I believe the host has uh, switched off my video. Okay. Here we go. Perfect. Okay, I'm back. Um, I would say, um, again, work with your pharmacist, work with your multidisciplinary team. Um, have your cheat sheets in your pocket, in your cl clinic wall, pasted there, taped down. Um, and, and again, talk to your patients about the option of receiving the PARP inhibitor as a monotherapy. One of the things that we didn't really discuss uh, was that there is a lot of controversy in the field. If you take 20 key opinion leaders that all study PARP inhibitors, and you ask half of them, whether they think the combination is better than the monotherapy. About half will say that we have not definitively proven that. What we've definitively proven is that we are increasing toxicities, that is for sure. And maybe in certain cases, we are allowing patients who may not have been fit enough to get therapy A followed by B, 
because of side effects and disease progression occurring in between. So you get both at, at the same time. But it really would have been nice if at least one of these trials had been designed with a built-in crossover, whereby you start with the monotherapy, and then upon progression, you get the AR inhibitor or the, or the, in, the inverse. You start with the AR inhibitor, and you get the PARP inhibitor upon progression. And for various reasons, they were not designed that way. So it still remains a very acceptable option to use a PARP inhibitor as a monotherapy and then to use the AR uh, inhibitor afterwards. In patients who are very young, have BRCA2 mutations, wish to be extremely aggressive, do not mind the extra pill burden, then clearly the combinations are reasonable. But you should never feel guilty and you should never make your patient feel guilty if he decides against the combination. You know, and that brings up a point, you know, I'll just give my two cents and I'll go to the, one of the questions. But um, my two cents are, you know, we have to like identify patients with precision medicine as much as possible so they can be, you know, kind of, we know that they're candidacy for these drugs. We're going to tackle a lot of that in our next part of our series on December 13th. But, you know, Dr. Costa put in the in the chat, you know, just sort of capital letters, costs with questions. And this sort of gets to, you know, we think about individual patient costs, we think about the societal costs, and it gets to Dr. Emanuel, uh, Dr. Tim point about, you know, should we do monotherapy, combination therapy? Two questions there, one for Carolyn or Emmanuel about cost, and also the idea of, of like, if someone's having a great response to the PARP plus, just to be controversial, to the PARP plus um, another agent, let's say, we ever consider taking them off the PARP after a year or two, um, you know, um, to prevent like uh, bone marrow toxicity, to prevent like MDS development, that kind of thing. Do it all in one minute or less. So cost-wise, I mean, these are just expensive as the PARP inhibitors are just as, as expensive as the ASRIs. So we're, you know, in some ways we are making the cost burden on patients significantly more for using these in combination. Um, there's not a great way to get around that. And then I'll, I'll answer the last question. I think in oncology, we were focusing on escalation of therapy for a very long time, and now we are beginning to talk about de-escalation. And actually, patients always ask about de-escalation. They're almost never asking about escalation these days. So yes, I, I would consider dropping either the PARP inhibitor or the AR antagonist, depending on which side effect is more troublesome for that patient. If I think it's more of an AR inhibitor side effect like sarcopenia, I might drop the enzalutamide. If it's really myelosuppression, anemia, I might drop the telazoprid. But again, only after there's been a profound uh, response. Wonderful. Um, thank you again, Emmanuel and Carolyn. For everyone out there, have a great uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And um, again, join us for part two and part three of these series.